And now, the Rathband tapes. Episode 11, Leap Year's Day. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband tapes. I'm Tony Horn in Lancashire, England, ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband in South Australia. His twin, Darren. Over the last few episodes, we have been reliving the entire story, featuring previously unheard audio of David in conversation with myself as we wrote the book Tango 190, uh, audio which nobody's ever heard, especially Darren. And the story now finds itself at the missing day, the 28th, the 29th of February, 2012 it was leap year's day when david could take no more last time we spoke he was leaving south australia and just to recap darren you knew that the end was nigh yeah uh, i have a feeling that of his breakdown with his marriage the fact that Kath clearly stated she didn't want anything to do with him and there was no uh, repairing anything that was broken. It was only a matter of time. He, he just lost any will to carry on, I think. What people might remember, as I mention it now, and have probably forgotten, is the social media. The clues were all there for those who had stayed the course, but for those watching in that voyeuristic way in which we observe life, get a bit involved, stir it up, withdraw. I do have, Darren, in front of me uh, some of the lowlights, if you like, because they're not highlights of, of David's Twitter from January... The 23rd and at this point you probably were sat in the room or next to him as he melts down doesn't he most of that really tony happened on our back veranda i certainly remember one day where he was just so desperate to speak to kath and she just disregarded him um just i think her main concern was trying to get an agreed settlement for divorce Presumably he's trying to speak to her as well as trying to draw her in through social media cries for help. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was a bit, bit... Obviously, when you're in that situation and if you just look at it as a breakdown of a relationship, emotions can make you sort of go down an avenue that's probably not the right thing for that situation. But obviously David was... He was, he was desperate. And, and me and Angie both could see that he was starting to sort of um, break down even more. And, and everything he tried was just pushed back at him. And, and I think we discussed it in a previous episode when David said it was the happiest they'd been for a long time, which was, I think if you look back on it now, they or she certainly caused an end to it pretty quick, which is quite sort of surreal, really. Yeah, I mean, you can say whatever words feel right. You can say it was a complicated relationship. But the truth of the matter is that there were times when it wasn't great and tragedy brings people together. And I suppose at that point, the test is whether everything is sustainable once the tragedy of a situation it dawns on you is now the norm and obviously i only knew them together and they were in a good place but it falls apart clearly in australia and you know if we look at these I mean, this is not going to be an easy read, but I think for the record, it's important. 23rd of January, 
So that's five weeks before. Always the case, there are either too many steps to go forward or too many people behind with daggers to throw. He was a good tweeter. Um, yeah, he's pretty good. You know, I like that in a person that can send a message to the wider platform, but is sending the underlying, you know, to those who get it. I think at one stage he had over 10,000 followers, which is pretty good for, <laughs> for a council house kid. <laughs> uh, 10 minutes after that one, disappointing when you realise the people that you thought would be there decide to use the block button also. February the 1st, it takes more energy to remain a victim and less energy to become a survivor. Why do people choose to be a victim? February the 2nd, rely on the very few. It saves the disappointment when you're let down by so many. That feels, I feel that I called him around the 5th of February and he, that's when he said to me, I've only got five people left in my phone. Um, what you're getting here is momentum, if you like, and fast-forwarding, I suppose, to, towards the end. Uh, February 2nd, rely on the very few. It saves the disappointment when you're let down by so many. February the 3rd, well, it's time to sleep. My loyal friend Tamazapam is staying with me. Zzz. No phone calls today, perhaps tomorrow. And then February the 3rd, directly to Kath, thank you for your correspondence this week. You've kept my spirit so high with your compelling compassion. And when we read that, I mean, do we read that with sadness or do we read that with a, a smile? Because if you know David, you can see you can see the pain in in that tweet, but you can also, you know, that is that is a dark dryness that was was part of his language, isn't it? Yeah, I think knowing the brother, Tony, I think that will probably be the complete opposite and it will be sarcasm that he's had very little contact with it. February the 3rd, doesn't take much to write an email. Funny how so many people lose the ability to communicate. <laughs> February the 3rd, to promise is an offer of integrity. To break a promise is the lowest form of selfishness. That's good. I don't know what specifically that refers to, um, but it probably, I mean, that's the thing about social media. That probably is something to Kath, but it probably could be consumed by many people who wandered into his life and didn't stay. Uh, Tony, there'll be a bus full of people that can stand there and have that quote thrown out. I mean, it can stick quite firmly to each and everyone's forehead. February the 16th, back to the land of Twitter and a few more on the list have let me down. No surprises there. Had a good day, all dark. February 18th, a busy day, another 40 pieces of shrapnel removed from my face, another six hours of work. However, it's getting better. That's the reference that we have spoken of in several episodes about David carrying moat in his physical body because the pellets were still there. And Angie, uh, Darren's partner, helping take them out. And then three days later, another few hours removing pieces of my from my face. 58 today. So this is considerable time, a year and a half after. Yeah. I think that was a daily occurrence. I think we've discussed that, Tony. He was forever picking metal out of his face. But a year and a half after, over 50 pieces, and it's never-ending. Yeah. And now we come to the, the last week, February 24th. A meeting with social services on Thursday, something to look forward to. I wonder if I'll get a painted doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> um, February 24th. Mrs. R said no to getting back. Disaster. So job lost, eyes lost, family lost. Wife and marriage lost. What a year. So was there contact before that? Or No, he, he, he sort of went off. He went, yeah, he sort of went quiet when he went there. And it was pretty, it was sort of pretty. 
pretty quick. I think it was three days, Tony. He, he... He's still in Australia when he's written that, I think. He follows it on February the 24th with simply R.I.P. PC Rathband. Yeah, I didn't see that one. February 25th, I've behaved terribly towards my wife since I got shot and she's done all she can to support me. So the sarcasm uh, turns to real, real desperation there. And then February 25th, very emotional few days, but back on track. Now focusing on my trip back to the UK and the road ahead. February 25th also. Thank you for your positive comments. I'm trying my best. Sometimes I get it wrong. Sorry. And then February 26th to you. Um, replying, was okay, got here fine. Thank you for looking after me. Speak soon and behave. Yeah. See, I made sure I made sure he had a companion for his flight on the way back. And then when they got back to England, I actually spoke to the lad who travelled with him. And he actually said, yeah, he was in good spirits. We he, 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 we had a long conversations. Everything's all right. He's got back all right. So I was sort of relatively at ease by sort of being told that. So at that stage, I had no concerns. You can see from those tweets, though, um, it's not a split personality. It's not bipolarity. It's a man who is broken, hanging on to hope. In some moments, when the Twitter community rallies around him, he looks like he thinks he can do it, but much of it is a cry for help. Um, we've spoken before about the two trips to Australia and getting his affairs in order. We've spoken about him being in the car at the end of your drive, going to the airport and you thinking you wouldn't see him again. I have a feeling that there is a small percentage in him that when he went back to England, he still thought he might have an audience with Kath. Yeah, I, 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 I certainly got that impression. And I, obviously, I, I think if that would have happened... He would not have killed himself. It would have, he, that would have given enough to stay and work at something. But I think what you've got to remember is that whatever difficulties they've had in the past, David was never back to normal. And I think when he got here, his, his relationship was not how he suggested it was before uh, the best they've ever been. At that stage, Tony. Kath didn't know anything about Lisa being his companion. Did you speak to David between him landing back at Newcastle and and the end, or did you just speak with the companion? No, I spoke to both. I spoke to both of them. I spoke to David's daughter as well. The week he got back, I spoke to Mia and said and asked that she maybe go and spend uh, some time with her dad and maybe stay with him because he obviously demonstrated that he was pretty pretty dark and, and sad and that it would probably be beneficial if somebody was with him. So I obviously thought that was going to happen after that conversation. And then on the day before... I don't, know if, I, I don't know if it was the day before or the day that he actually killed himself. I, I spoke to him and I spoke to Lisa French, who had gone round to check on him. And how was he? Lisa was concerned about him. She had told me that he seemed not in a good place. He was saying that he was just jet-lagged. But he was didn't want to do anything, uh, and I asked her to assure me that she would not leave him on his own in that house uh, under any circumstance. And unfortunately, the word that she gave me, her word, I took for exactly that, 
and uh, unfortunately that that never transpired. She left the address because the uh, calf came round. One thing that I think we've both experienced in making these shows is analysing our own memories and realising that, you know, to anybody listening, this has never gone away. But we, by undertaking these these shows, have put all those emotions back under the microscope. And, you know, I'm having thoughts now that have probably been dormant. One of them is when I've read out some of those tweets there, they're a selection. And back in the moment, in 2012, there really were a distressing, um, a, a distressing avalanche of, you know, I've read out about twenty tweets there, but it was it was pretty relentless, and something we'll come back to in the next but one episode when we talk about the inquest and then the litigation on the Friday before David took his own life. I rang his family liaison officer, Alison Brown, about eight o'clock in the evening and said, David's going to kill himself. And we exchanged some text messages. I think there was more than one phone call. I think she said to me, how do you know? And I said, I just know. I can tell. We'll pick this up again in a couple of episodes because... It's an example, let's just say at this point, of Northumbria police having several versions of the truth. I think what you've got to look at, Tony, and and I'm I'm going to sort of voice it, is Northumbria police have certainly got a selective mindset of what they actually want to read, see, or get involved in. David was clearly in distress. Anybody with any idea of what he'd gone through, knew that, saw that, read it. When I was in Stafford, somebody read one of my messages off my Twitter and sent the police round for a welfare check. Just on a base, on a, not as much as what David was posting. Northumbria police sent uh, that welfare officer that didn't know his arse from his elbow, Tony, and then let him go on his way and said, I'll see you a bit later after... By all accounts, they've seen all those messages and they've got previous knowledge that he's tried to kill himself within the last couple of months. Yes, and we must talk about that right now. Suffice to say, with the conversation I had on that Friday night, it was ignored. And to allude to what's going to come in a couple of episodes that phone conversation wasn't originally mentioned in the statement of the officer from Northumbria police. Before we address Darren's comment just there, the other thing reference the episode entitled 15 minutes of fame and our relationships with the press. These tweets were, clickbait for papers like the Daily Mail as though a journalist wakes up in the morning and says right let's see what Rathband's got for us today and I understand what it means to be a journalist but the entertainment value over responsibility is an issue here And only hindsight, i.e. David's death, really allows you to point the finger at the media and say that they were instrumental in its circus. They were loving the fodder that David was giving them. Blind, I use that word, to the pain and desperation that was about to manifest itself in the end. And yes, we had been here before, something which I didn't know, 
until Darren told me before we recorded. But in the previous autumn, back in England, Darren, David had tried to take his own yeah. life. Yeah, I believe it was uh, September, October. He took an overdose at his home address, visited by somebody that took some time to arouse him at the house. Eventually, he came down, looked clearly dishevelled and not well, and a discussion was had that he'd taken an overdose uh, and obviously had tried to kill himself. She was, uh, I'm sure she won't mind me identifying who it was. It was Penny Dana, David's rehabilitation officer. She was not happy to leave him at the address on his own. So she contacted Northumbria Police and said that somebody needed to get to his house. And my understanding is somebody did. So they were fully aware that he was quite open to ending his life. And let's face it, I think... Most people were. The context of that, though, is that he has, the public would perceive, a cracking first year after he shot. Now, we know the struggles... And we've discussed the battles with administration, the physicality of being blind, right up to when the book comes out on the first anniversary. And then, obviously, there's the incident in August with Ash. Uh, There's the Great North Rum. But generally, you know, whilst the warning signs were always hovering in the background, they certainly weren't as under the microscope and in full public glare as this Twitter meltdown in the month before he did die. So I suspect that people are hearing this for the first time, that that happened then. The obvious question to follow is what changed in Northumbria Police's treatment of David with that firmly in their knowledge? Nothing? I think you're probably right, Tony. I don't think there was much before, and there certainly wasn't anything after it, because let's face it, those those signals are clearly demonstrated on Twitter. It's quite clear that he's been disowned by the press. He's now, his marriage is up the swanee, and they still don't think he's at risk. Would David have told Northumbria Police that he was coming to Australia the first time in that autumn of 2011? I'm not sure. I don't think he'd have any reason to. I think one of his reasons, and I think we touched on it, he just wanted to get away from uh, all the all the uh, and all the uh, just all, all the chaos that went with him jumping through hoops. I think he was quite happy just to come here and be anonymous. So I'm not sure. And you know what, Tony? I had no contact with them. I think the the trouble I caused them just by trying to do right by David, I certainly wasn't considered as a ally to Northumbria Police. So there was no communication to even suggest that it was a, a sort of partnership to make sure David was okay. I'm sure individuals that dealt with David in those first few days and weeks would take issue with this, but I would wager that when they knew he was in Australia with you, it pushed him a little bit further back down the queue in terms of their responsibility. Let's put it like that. The broader question here, and David as a former family liaison officer understands the role that he now had to call on family liaison officers. The broader question for anybody going forward has to be at what point does a family liaison officer withdraw and brackets go on to the next job? An intelligent person, and clearly no one's put their hand up and said this within the police, 
an intelligent person would correctly conclude that you need to be a family liaison officer for the rest of that person's life because the struggles are magnified in the immediate aftermath but will cause you mood swings unless you are an absolute saint for the rest of your time imagine being a victim of a drunk driver to be a family liaison officer that's that conduit between the police and the family and i think you've you've certainly got to have clear understanding of what your role is because you can get you can get confused and emotionally changed by the incident and people you're dealing with i think the tweets point us in the direction of David's understanding that he was clearly being forgotten and whether that's by Cath or Northumbria police. One thing that I've been asked many times is, I, I don't think it's a great question, how would David like to be remembered? And I always reply, he just wanted to be remembered. I've got a couple of clips of him talking. I think we've heard one of these before. It's, they, they, they need to realise how lucky they all were, because I, I took what I took for all of them, and they forget. I'll be, I'll be forgotten. You know what I mean? I'll just be, oh, oh yeah, Rathband, he was a cop that got shot. And how degrading is that for me? In the police, I will, Tony, and that means more to me than outside in the public domain. I know the public are fickle in in some ways, but the police police officers are the ficklest people I've ever met in my life. You can leave the police on a Friday after 30 years of service and be forgotten by the following. Yeah, I don't think he says that as the victim who is feeling forgotten. I think he says that quite rationally as a policeman who's seen his colleagues do that many, many times. Police are really fickle. Mm. You know, I'll, I'll be remembered for as long as I am in the paper or in the police. So the, the day I leave the police, within weeks I will be forgotten by the people that are within Northumbria Police. And I'll play that clip because you can probably hear the acoustics are quite different. So one's a telephone conversation and one's in the house in Blythe. So he said it to me more than once. So it's not a reaction. It's not him feeling low. It's how he understands that institution deals with those who've left. I think Look. I think that's quite evident, Tony. Um and I think that certainly if you have become broken, you are quite clearly, or can be quite clearly, ostracised because you become the difficult person. How do we deal with this? What do we say? Now, let's, let's just put that bit into context that David believes he's took one for the team, irrespective of if he has or if he hasn't. He's been shot. He's a policeman. You would think his door per week would be getting knocked numerous times, okay? He's come back from Australia. The only person that's met him from North um, Northumbria Police is an inspector that's unqualified, spent minutes with him, and sent him on his merry way. The, the doorbell isn't being rung by numerous colleagues. Nobody from... There for who he went to work with, I think visited him when he got back from Australia. I did ask him about his mental state. People don't ask that question and and hang around for the answer, even though in the last few years people have used this phrase are you okay it's not okay to be okay and even some of that whilst generating a conversation about mental health is also prone to parody it's difficult to approach people's mental health with those people that are suffering from mental health because one of the things that happens to you if you're suffering with poor mental health is that 
you're quite selective in who you want to open up to. And if you've got somebody like David as well, clearly broken, I think that applies, who he would talk to. And there's also that stubbornness. And remember, you know, we go right back to the days after he shot when he said, I bear them no malice. And he's maintaining that public front. Clearly, if everybody cannot see that this is a depressed man, then then I give up. Well, we would need further counselling for um, PTSD and depression. And I told her that I wouldn't need further counselling for depression. Why? Well, because I won't let myself go there. And that's quite an interesting answer, isn't it? I won't let myself go there, but actually there's a there's an energy that takes you there without you having a say in whether you allow it in. He's already there, Tony. He's already there. He's living a life with no with no vision. And I've I've said before, uh, and I'll I'll put this directly to the uh, ACPO or the College of Policing. In the United Kingdom, you are responsible for your officers' mental health and all officers that are involved in or subject to assault or injury should be made to mandatory attend a psychiatric assessment with a qualified PTSD counsellor to determine whether they need support. It shouldn't be put on the officer to make that decision because you know what? They make that decision to reduce the stress and risk of them being identified as broken. They don't tell people they're suffering. And it reiterates what I just alluded to about how long a family liaison officer stays in your life. You don't just ask that question or run that assessment once. It's it's forever. We should learn this from the trauma of people who went to Vietnam or landed on the Normandy beaches, but I don't think we do. Let's go back to Leap Year's Day. 2012 i've made this point so many times when we look at the relationship that david had with people who wandered into his life the day is buried for three years out of four so some of the passers-by might not have it inscribed in the brain when it comes to remembering the anniversary of david's death it's a coincidence of timing or a cunning plan from David. Um, but cunning plan, Tony. I, I think, and I think he's done that for the people that he loves to try and. I like the fact that it catches people out, Darren. I like that. Yeah. Well, if you look at it, he's only been he's only been gone. He's only been gone. Is it uh, eight years? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, like I think he, he, he made that choice. He made that choice. I like the fact that we're able to laugh without guilt at the light side of of this very dark side. Um, because he'd be smiling at that, I think. Yeah, Tony. I think we've touched on and discussed my my, my regret and decision making that I made in regards to David's mental health. And, and what I could have done. There are people clearly in a better position than I was to have a direct effect on what David did on that day. His wife was outside the house, Tony, before he was deceased. She spoke to him from a bedroom window and could clearly see that he was in distress and likely to do something that some people would regret. And her choice was to ring my sister, who was four hours away, and tell her that she needed to come and get him because she thought he was going to kill himself. I'm going to ask you the question which 
always is asked in these moments. When did you get the call? Debbie rang me. My sister rang me and said, I've just had, I've just spoke to Kath. She thinks David is um, possibly going to kill himself or do something silly. He's um, at home. He won't let her in the house. She's asked me to drive up there four hours away. What am I supposed to do? I can't get there quick enough. And I then said, you need to ring Northumbria police and ask them to do a welfare check. And obviously Debbie is not the best at dealing with stressful situations because of her mental health and what she went with losing Naomi. So I said, um, I will, I'll try and ring up. So, and I was at work. I had, I had a trial to run on that particular morning. I was the prosecutor for a police file and I rang Northumbria police and I was told on the phone that the police were currently at the address and then they alluded to basically lip service and wouldn't tell me what was going on. Then presumably you get another phone call within minutes, hours? No, I stayed on the phone and I spoke to the operator, who I'm not sure if she was police or civvy, and said, look, you're talking to somebody who's actually in the job. I know the police are at my brother's house. I want to know what is going on inside that address. And then she said, oh, just hold on for, just hold on for me. And she came back in about three seconds and said, uh, they're working on him. Unfortunately, he's, he's either, he's tried to kill himself or he's, he's hung himself. And then I just screamed and fell, fell, fell on the floor in the middle of an office of about 23 people screaming. So it was unclear what she told you. It was clear that he, I, I just knew, I, I knew he, I knew he had. Uh, the the intimation was it wasn't certain, but it was words to the effect look, that police are there, they're forced entry, they're working on him, or that he's tried to hang, or he's tried to hang himself. And I, I just I, I knew he was, I knew he'd gone, I, I knew he was dead. And I just, like I said, I just fell on the floor screaming. And I later spoke to Kerry Marshall, and she said that it appeared like she went to the house, and it appeared the police officers who were in attendance, stayed outside for what seemed like an eternity without forcing entry. And then they decided to smash the patio window and then went in. And I think they asked her to go out because they'd found him. And he'd, he'd got a sheet off, off his mattress that was on the, on the floor because there was no furniture and put it to the balcony on the third floor. And you know what, Tony? He could have stood up. He could have stood up and stopped. What happens in a scenario like that? What is the key factor in the police not attempting to enter a property immediately? I'm not sure. I think it would have been, and I can. This is a, a, an assumption from what you possibly could think of. It's a fellow officer. It's a profile that might come back and bite you on your arse. I better speak to supervision. I think that's what happened. A supervisor told them to force entry. I think they tried to find a key for neighbour and uh, obviously the supervisor said force entry. Looking at it so out like, of context, if they know he's in the building and there's no response from him, um, that's possibly a, a clue, isn't it? So, uh, and... I, I think, and I'm 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 certain people that will listen to this, and this 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 is the truth. This this isn't fabricated to make Northumbria police look uh, incompetent. Surely, people who have listened to this story know from what they've been party to that David was in the throes of a severe episode of depression, suicide intentions. You, you, you just, you, you can see it. And it just takes that long for somebody, even his wife, his wife is outside the address. 
ringing my sister four hours away saying, your brother is going to kill himself. You better get up here and help him. She was outside the address, Tony. She could have helped him. She Nobody didn't. knows how anyone will respond in a situation like this, but I think it cannot be in dispute, if I just take a little bit of what you said there, that the disconnect, as is a favourite modern phrase, between Northumbria Police and David is massive and evident in these last few days. We've already, I think, painted the picture that the tweets show a broken man breaking. We have outlined several times on previous episodes about David referring to having jet lag upon his return and not being depressed, masquerading in a jet lag for the mental health condition that he was in. You know, this descent matched up with a possible yeah, delay about entering the house. It, that that yeah. looms large off the page yeah. to me. This is the really frustrating thing for me, is that they, whoever it was, it, be, be it the blame on Lisa, Kath, me, we, we all carry some blame. And you know what? The people that don't and don't acknowledge that burden, like Kath, and Northumbria police uh, and certain individuals in that force should be ashamed of themselves. They had every opportunity to have an impact on David taking his own life, and they didn't. I was back in Lim in Cheshire uh, in the spare room. I got a phone call from... Sharon Ashurst, who became the public relations person for the Blue Lamp Foundation, the charity. I wasn't particularly close to Sharon. In fact, we'd had a minor disagreement. So when my phone rings and I see her number... I am very surprised it's her rather than by what she has to tell me. And I think I was in bed. So I think it was between 10 and midnight. And I don't know what I thought actually at that point. I think I just lay there thinking, and then the next thing, you ring me. And I think it's five past one in the morning, UK time, and you're in departures at Adelaide. Here we go again. Oh. And I, rem I remember you said to me, can you just speak for me until I get back? And you said something akin to... David trusted you, so can you do that for me? Do you remember being in departures? And once is too many times to have to make that mercy dash home, but here you go again. Yeah, I, I, I do remember talking to you, and what's quite clear is that you mentioned that disconnect. It's, I saw people that came into David's life that I didn't know, didn't trust, who betrayed him. I saw quite clearly people that should have done more, doing very little. Um, and I, I, I know that he trusted you, Tony. I know that doing the book for him is was cathartic uh, and maybe helped him deal with some of those mental health issues. Not all of them, and we've discussed that, like these podcasts have. Uh, and I've mentioned to you after the first one where I was a blubbering wreck, they have been cathartic. And this is all the process about mental health. You have to you have to talk about these things and understand why you feel like you do. We're allowed to feel 
uh, emotional as men. We don't have to be stoic, uh, brush it off. I've cried buckets for my brother. I've, I've been angry over what's happened to me and what people didn't do. But I, I, this is part of that healing process. So yeah. coming from Australia to England again, you know, it, it was inevitable. The strange thing is, Darren, that when you rang me, you know, we didn't even have each other's numbers. You sent me a direct message on Twitter, which I don't normally see, um, asking for my number. And we will talk in the final episode of this series, which I have notionally called One Last Tango, Loose Ends, Damaged Goods. <laughs> Yeah. We'll talk about damage. And two comments on something Darren's just said there. I mean, doing this this series, when I had the idea for it a few years ago, I thought it was appropriate and I thought it was the balance that was going to be always missing from this story. It has been all-consuming and, of course, has opened everything up. Uh, wounds that perhaps, personally, I shouldn't have anywhere near on the level that, that you do. And in terms of the book, the book's been terrific for me. It's the best thing I ever wrote, and I know he was proud and happy with it. But I have often ask myself if it helped and it helped in the way that he's on the record he gets it all out it gave him focus night after night to do it but if you look at that first year after David was shot it was full and I don't think he would have said anything different had the passage of time been longer before we started work on that book but if there hadn't been that book and that time had perhaps been spent with proper and better care, possibly there may have been a different outcome. If you think some of our sessions on the phone were four hours a time and we were working five times, six times a week, that's a lot of responsibility that was taken out of other people's lives the family, for example, would always know that David would be on the phone to me all evening. I suppose that gives them a break. But if there'd been a void instead of that concentration of work and working to a deadline, then maybe we would have removed that option where the book enabled him to block out some stuff that needed addressing. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. That's the power of hindsight and what the uh, the judge used in the litigation, the assumption, isn't it? Yeah. People assumed that somebody else was going to make sure David was okay. Um, and then when you look at cats outside the house, Mia's outside the house shortly before, Lisa French, he was here. Let's, let's face it, Tony, no, nobody was there for him. And that's that's the sad thing. That's the sad thing that... He got injured. You know what? It, like, it, even when you look at the charity, which I started that, he got involved. And then that all turned on its head because he wasn't happy with what the charity was doing. It was set up to give money out, not save it. And they, they failed in what that charity was set up for. And I, I despise myself for actually saying that in the same breath. But they are not doing what, what, what we set that charity up for, and that's why David walked away from it. I, I've got emails where he had arguments uh, about giving money out. I fell out with them. One minute I was a spokesman for them, the next minute I was blocked from their from their page. And after donating twenty five thousand pounds, I was blocked. I was blocked from even speaking to any of them. So. It's, it's just it's crap, and when you look at these people, that just they let him down. 
Well, I think the point there on the charity is that if this was to be the focus, which would create a new identity for him, talking to schools, being compassionate as a family liaison officer, as a victim, and giving immediate financial support to those unfortunate enough to find themselves in not dissimilar situations to him, then I don't think anybody can argue. And you can't say, well, we did pay out this. I don't think anybody can argue that the role that the charity was supposed to play in David's life did not materialise. And you know what? David raised over a million pounds and he died not even being recognised for those for those efforts. It is the 29th of February, 2012. Darren is once again in the air. I'm in bed, awake. What happens next? And how did we end up with three funerals? That's to come. Next time. On the Rathband tapes. It's time to lose the headlines that always link my friend to the name of the coward who took his sight. My friend is called David Rathband. Everybody knows his name and how he became a hero. Let his name, not his attacker, be remembered for generations to come. With thanks to series consultant Rob Jones, this is a horny media and publishing production.